thanks for listening to jpulse.org. You can find this and other great talks on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching jpulse. Today's talk is, Is Torah Divine? by Rabbi Bergstein. Okay. Good evening, everyone. Uh, nice to be here in Boston, Baruch Hashem. My name is Eliyahu Bergstein. As Rabbi J.P. Katz already mentioned, that we know each other from Madison, Wisconsin, where I was there actually three times, I believe, to do presentations. And in Madison, we did do a two-and-a-half-hour presentation, which basically condenses the entire discovery program of two days into two-and-a-half hours. It's, um, you know, tightly packed, so to speak. Tonight... Don't get excited. Don't worry. It's not two and a half hours. We're looking at the clock already. It's going to be approximately one hour, and we're going to do two segments, two portions of the discovery program. As an introduction, let me say the following. Rabbi Katz mentioned that a rational approach to Torah, and is the Torah real? Did God give the Torah? Did God write the Torah? He wrote the Torah. How could the God write a book, maybe he's collecting royalties still, it's a very popular book, you know, and how do we decide, how do we decide? The answer is, we decide everything based on evidence. A person makes decisions based on evidence. If I would ask you, uh, if you had a vacation place you'd love to go to, where you've never been, anybody have one, raise your hand if you're, you know, if you're very happy right here in Boston, fine, good. But if you have a vacation destination you might want to go to once upon a time, raise your hand and tell me where it is. Yes? Hawaii. Where? Hawaii? Yeah. It's warmer than Boston, probably? Yeah. yeah. You've never been there? Okay. What's your name? Sam. Sam? Yeah. Sam says he'd like to go to Hawaii and he's never been there and it's nice, huh? That's, that's what they say. What they say. Could Hawaii really not exist? Is that possible? I mean... Transcendental level, or do you mean reality? No, in reality. <laughs> uh, it's there, yeah. Uh, how do you know? I've seen it in uh, the news. I've, I've seen it uh, uh, live. I know people that have there. I've seen flights leaving there. Okay. Sam says it exactly. Sam says, I have evidence that Hawaii exists. Strong evidence. He has friends who have been there. He gets online and he sees the flight schedule of American out of Logan to, to Hawaii. They probably even have direct flights, possibly. He has friends who have been there. He's in the newspaper, on the internet, on the globe. Uh, he knows they were the 50th straight state. They were actually the 50th. Yeah, joined in 1959. And uh, he sees pictures of the sandy beaches. That's Hawaii. And... He doesn't say he believes in Hawaii. He knows Hawaii exists. It's, it's not a belief doesn't mean you have to be there personally. Enough evidence, and you say clearly, I know, and he have no hesitation to book a ticket. Actually, this idea goes past just a vacation. This idea goes all the way to the jury system. If you're picked for a jury and you're on a case and somebody's accused of robbing a bank, and you listen to the evidence. And the prosecuting attorney says, well, we have a pictures of him robbing the bank, we have videos, we have uh, five witnesses, the money was in the trunk of his car with his fingerprints. On the way out of robbing the bank, he, he cut his finger on the front door and we took some blood samples and matches his DNA. And you're on the jury 
and you say guilty. And somebody will ask you, how can you say guilty? Did you see it? Maybe the witnesses are all paid off. Maybe the money in his trunk is a setup. Maybe the bank's camera has been doctored. Maybe the DNA is his closest twin brother that maybe closely matches him, and it's a lab mistake. You shake your head, no, no, no. The judge said beyond a reasonable doubt, not beyond a shadow of a doubt, Reasonable doubt. The guy, look, this, this, this. The evidence all stacks up. Basically, anything that we do is based on evidence. In fact, if somebody wants to go to Harvard University here in Boston, and they live in California, they send in a, regi a registration form and an application with a non-refundable $100 application fee. How do they know that Harvard exists? Maybe Harvard is just a street in Boston, but there's no such university. They didn't see it. They live in California. Why would they send in $100? Maybe it's a post office box of some guy who's running, a, you know, something like that. Of course, what do you mean? I know Harvard exists. They have so many graduates. I think Obama himself is a graduate of Harvard. John Kennedy, I think, was a graduate of Harvard, or he lived nearby anyway. That's evidence. And nobody hesitates to send in their application. Basically, the discovery program says, well, you know what? We can examine documents the same way and determine based on what we see in the document is there evidence of who the author is. The Israeli Mossad, the FBI of Israel, does the same thing all the time. They get communiques from their spies around the world. Maybe it's a hoax, maybe something else. They examine it. If it has different kinds of information, they can verify it that this is from their spy and it's not somebody who hacked into their network or something. Everything is based on evidence. The trip to Hawaii for Sam, the guy who was accused of robbing the bank, the application to Harvard University, and I could give you examples all night, but I'll waste my time. Who wrote the book? Who wrote the Torah? The rabbis will tell you, oh, the Torah, we all stood at Sinai. And we heard the voice of Hashem, I am the Lord your God. He dictated it to Moses. Moses came down with the tablets of stone, with the dictated book. Eh, you know it's dictated. It says a hundred times in the book, Vayadaber Hashem Lema, God spoke to Moses as follows. Dictation to Moses. That's the five books of Moses. And then the rabbi says that, and somebody else says, come on, you some people put it together, it was a group of people, maybe Moses wrote a little, maybe somebody else wrote it a little later, maybe somebody wrote it a thousand years later and said this is the ancient document, you know, and to give it a little more selling power, they said it's God. So, tonight we're going to look at evidence. Only a small portion of evidence, because of our limited time, but hopefully the most critical core portion of evidence, and then we'll decide ourselves. We're not talking proof. Proof is out of range. There's no proof that Hawaii exists for Sam. There's no proof that that man actually robbed the bank, and there's no proof to the person sitting in California that Harvard exists. But we don't live our lives on proof. We live our lives and make our decisions based on evidence. If there's enough evidence, no matter what the conclusion is, we go with it. So that's where we're going. We'll try to do it as fast as possible so we don't stay here all night. 
The section called transmission is what we're going to look at. And the transmission section was picked tonight specifically because it hits the nail on the head. It looks specifically at Exodus chapter 20 where it talks about the Torah being given, the Sinai event that the Jews stood at the foot of Sinai and they received the Torah. Moses went up to the mountain. He was there 40 days and 40 nights. And that's right where we start. I like to start at this point anyway from doing a mini-discovery because being that I've been doing this discovery program teaching for many years, we've already incorporated my picture as the first slide. You know, to give it a little, especially if we're recording it, you want to have, you know, not just the current image, but, you know, me in, in a better, better looking image. So I'll show you the first slide, but you don't laugh because I was younger then and I looked a little better. Okay? Okay, here I am in my younger days. <laughs> uh, no laughing, we said, right? Is that me? It could be me. I don't look a little bit like that. No, no work, huh? Who is that actually? No. Okay, I heard three answers. I heard Kirk Douglas. That's not who it is. Then I heard Moses Heston. And then I heard Charlton Heston. <laughs> it could be Moses, yeah, or it could be Charlton Heston, but Moses Heston, it isn't. It's actually Charlton Heston playing the role of Moses in, I think, probably a 1960 film, The Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston died maybe six, seven years ago when he was 94 years old. And in this picture, he's probably 40-something with some makeup to make him look a little older and more distinguished. So this is an old movie. The problem with a movie is it's not quite the same as what it says in the book. We even have experience ourselves with that. There was a few years ago that Da Vinci stuff, and the book everybody read, and then the movie wasn't quite as good. Here... It's the same kind of thing. The book and the movie don't quite match. In the movie, the Jews are dancing around the golden calf while Moses is presenting them with the tablets. That's not really what happened. We've got to look in the book, see what it actually says. So we have this quote. This quote says, And God spoke to Moses and said, Go to the nation and tell them to make themselves holy today and tomorrow and to cleanse their clothing and they shall be prepared for the third day. For on the third day God shall descend before the eyes of all the nation on Mount Sinai. This is a quote translated from the original Hebrew about what's taking place. To put it in a framework and a context, the Jews left Egypt on Passover. It's seven weeks later. They're in the Sinai desert on the way to the land of Israel. They're imminently supposed to go into the land of Israel right after they get the Torah. They were delayed, as we know, 40 years. No GPS, I guess, whatever. And the Jews are at the foot of Sinai. And the Torah says that they were told that they should be ready. The third day God shall descend before the eyes of all the nation on Mount Sinai. Wow, is that going to be an event? God's going to appear? Is it going to happen? The Torah says it happened. The Torah says clearly, and it was on the third day in the morning, and there were great noises and thunder and thick cloud on the mountain, very powerful sound of the shofar ram's home, and the nation of the camp trembled. And the entire nation witnessed the voices and the flames and the sound of the shofar. And you can look it up afterwards in the Chumash, in the Bible, in Shavos. I'm pretty familiar with this section because it happened to have been my bar mitzvah, Pasha. Yeah, it was the Shabbos of my bar mitzvah. 
comes out in February or so, and a number of years ago. And uh, it's my bar mitzvah pasha. So I read the Torah of that Shabbos, so I'm familiar with the Hebrew. And this is what it says. Did it really happen? So let's do something difficult. Let's play God. Very difficult because us and God are quite different. We don't know much about God's per se, but we can know about God's interaction with people. If God wants to make his will known, he could do it one of two ways. One way would be to do it publicly, like this. Gather together an entire nation and make your will known. And the other way is privately. Pick one person, hey, you, you look like you're a charismatic person, you look like Charlton Heston maybe, and we'll make you the messenger, tell everybody about my laws, what I want to do. Which way would be more credible? You don't know? I'll tell you a story to help you out. There was an Indian chief. The Indian chief died. He told, he, after he died, he left over three sons. Each son said, I want to be the new chief. And they fought around for weeks. After a few weeks, one of the sons comes running into the camp in the morning, and he says to the people, problem is solved. Papa came to me in a dream last night. He told me who the new chief should be. They say, who? He says, me. They say, go back to sleep. And tell Papa not to come to you in a dream and tell you you should be the new chief. Let Papa come to all of us in the dream and tell us that he wants you to be the new chief. You don't have any credibility. Maybe you dreamt Papa told that to you. In fact, if Papa really had the power after he dies to come back and tell everybody what he wants, he'd know very well it's useless to come to you. He should come to everyone. So that's the difference between God revealing himself through a single person or through a mass event. Single person is, God spoke to me last night, told me this and this, these are told me I am the Lord your God, don't kill, don't steal, don't jaywalk, don't do this, don't do that, whatever the laws are. God told me and he told me to let you all know. So you say to the guy, you know, you're a nice guy. Yeah. Did you take a pill before you went to sleep last night? You know, you had such a wild dreams. But if you experience it yourself, that's a different story. I will digress for a second, and I'll tell you the following. The original intent of God's Torah was actually not for the Jewish people. It was for the world. It was for Adam and Eve. A little problem, though. Adam and Eve couldn't even handle the one commandment, don't eat the fruit of that tree. So 613 would have been overwhelming for them. So God had to postpone the event. And he wanted to actually give the Torah at the time of Noah by the flood. But after the flood, as you know, Noah, if you read the Bible, Noah ended up being drunk and not ready to get a Torah. And so it went on and on the generations. And the Jews, after the experience in Egypt, after going through that terrible slavery, which actually molded them into a nation, 
and they came out into the Sinai Desert, they were a nation of unanimity, of unity, of togetherness to the extent that the Torah actually uses the singular for their encampment. Vayichan Yisrael, the entire Jewish people encamped like one person with one purpose, with one direction, with one heart. When the Jewish people are like that, God says, now's the time to give the Torah. I would say to an extent we've already been successful that our Torah has influenced mankind big time so that major, major religions of hundreds of millions of people have been certainly influenced by our Torah. So the original intent for all of mankind is getting there, and with Messiah it'll get there all the way. But now let's get back to the subject. Did this really happen? First of all, this is the best way to present the document. If I say, Moses would come and say, God came to me, God spoke to me, everybody would say, you know, Moses, yes or no, we don't know. This is a much better way. This way, everybody hears and everybody sees. In fact, it's such a good way that... Every religion should really have a story like this as its beginning point. Because why start off with one person if you can start off with a major giant event? But nobody else does. How many religions are in the world? I don't know. Major religions, small religions, maybe a thousand religions. There's even actually a religion out west. When I was out in the west, they told me there's a guy named Bob, I forgot his last name, who started his own religion, Bobism. He named it after himself. I, I, he wanted to name it after his wife, Judy, but the name was taken, so he had to use his own name. And uh, so there's a lot of religions. That's, not, that's a minor religion, but there are other religions, major religions. How many religions total have a claim of a national revelation, God coming and speaking to the entire nation? Only one, only the Jews. What was the Jewish population at Sinai? Hard to tell, but there were 603,000 males of military age. So if you double it for the women, and you add the children, and you add the senior citizens who probably got a discount at Sinai, then you got about two or two and a half million people. So two and a half million people are standing. Now, that's an impressive number. Just because today there's 13 million Jews doesn't mean two and a half million is a small change. In ancient times, that's big, big numbers. Two and a half million people are, are at this event. And the only religion to claim that their entire nation experienced a divine revelation is the Jewish people. And it's in our book. And that's the best way to start a religion. Because it says that you don't have to rely on Moses. I saw it myself. If I'm at Sinai, I see it myself. I'm experiencing it. I don't have to rely on this one, on that one, on somebody else, on a prophet, on somebody who's going to do some kind of minor miracle or something like that. I saw it myself. So how come nobody else makes the claim? Isn't that odd? Wouldn't you think that a major religion like Christianity or Islam would have a similar thing? You know, in, in their books? You know, right, let's say Christianity, right in the year 70 in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, 
everybody was standing there and they heard thunder and lightning and the entire nation heard the voice of God saying Sunday is the day of rest and whatever else is in the religion. But they don't make such a claim. Why not make the claim? That's a much better way to start a religion. Why are we the only ones to make this claim? In fact, even if this didn't happen, you make it up. If it's the best way to start a religion, make it up. Question is solid. What's the answer? Why doesn't every other religion make this claim? The answer is so simple that you're first not going to believe the answer. But I'll give you an example. The answer is, if it didn't happen, you cannot make it up. You cannot fit such a gigantic major event into history if it didn't happen. Not at that time and not at a later date. It's too big an event to falsify. And that's why no one else makes that claim. They would love to. Every religion would love to. But if it didn't happen, you can't get away with making that claim. Can I back that up? Simple example. Boston is a real university town. So, this is Harvard University. And this is U.S. History 101. And I now have become Professor Bergstein instead of Rabbi Bergstein. I can keep my yarmulke on, it's okay? Yeah, okay. Here's the real story of U.S. History. To me, you, you are my students here in Harvard, U.S. History 101. The real history of the United States. And I'm going to write a book, which is going to have this information in it. In 1776, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, and two million Pennsylvanians were standing in Center City, Philadelphia. Anybody's been to Philly? Okay. Corner of, let's say, Market and uh, whatever street over there. Market Street. Center City, Philadelphia. Near the Delaware River. And suddenly, there was great noises and the powerful sound of the chauffeur getting stronger and stronger and thunder and lightning from the skies. And they heard God's voice from the heavens. I am the Lord your God who has taken you out from under King George of England and made you a free nation, the United States of America. And a fiery declaration of independence came down from the heavens <laughs> into Benjamin Franklin's hands. Why are you laughing? That's the true history of the United States. How do you know it isn't? Anybody here 270 years old or whatever, how long ago that was? Maybe that happened. Maybe it happened. How do you know it didn't happen? You weren't here. Your great-great-grandparents weren't born yet. And if they were, they were still in Poland or Hungary or wherever they came from in Europe, in Tsarist Russia. They weren't even here in America then. Maybe that happened. How do you know that it didn't happen? Very simple. If that would have happened, you wouldn't need Professor Bergstein to be writing it in his crazy book, because if that really would have happened, 
Everybody from here to California would know about it. It would have been something passed down by 300 million Americans to their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And it would be in the American history books from George Washington's time till today. You know what happened? In 1776, there was God's voice came thundering down and we have the documents from the heavens and we, we all experienced it. Not five people, two million Pennsylvanians were there. Independence Day, July 4th, would be a, a whole week of Yontif with Cholomoed, with who knows what would be there. It would be gigantic. If it really happened, everybody would know about it. If Eliyahu Bergstein comes 200-something years later and says, this happened? You look at me and say, what do you mean? how do you know? Where do you get that idea from? You just made that up. It can't be. You know about it? Nobody else knows about it? The Library of Congress doesn't know about it. Americans who can trace back their grandfathers and grandmothers to getting off the Mayflower somewhere around this neighborhood. They don't even know about it. And you know about it? What are you talking about? Can't be. That's why nobody makes this claim. Because a major, major historical event can't be falsified. If you try to falsify it at the time and say it happened now, everybody says it's not true. We were here. We witnessed and nothing such thing happened. And if you try and say it 500 years later, sorry, such an event you can't falsify. I could tell you that my great-great-grandfather was an expert tailor in a basement tailor shop in Krakow, Poland. It's true? Not true? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe yeah. But if I tried to tell you that besides Napoleon Bonaparte, there was another French emperor who ruled after him called Bafuftia, who made everybody wear purple shoes for 60 years, and the entire world was forced into purple shoes, you would say to me, I don't like purple, number one. And number two, it couldn't have happened, because we would know about it. Major events, we'd know about it. That's why nobody can make this claim. Because if it's a claim of a gigantic major event, if it didn't happen, you can't retrofit it. Some people say, theory. Ezra, the scribe, wrote the Torah. Why do they say that? He was a scribe anyway. He was a leader of the Jewish people at the time of the building of the Second Temple. Maybe he wrote the Torah. So let's play it out. Imagine I'm Ezra. I come with a Torah. Come here. Yeah, I'm Ezra. <laughs> Hi, everyone. What do you got there, Ezra? I have the Torah. The Torah? What's the Torah? Oh, the Torah is our book of laws that we have all the way since the time of Moses at Sinai. Yeah? We never heard of it. Oh yeah, look here. And God spoke to Moses, and it was morning, and the entire nation witnessed the thunder, and this and this and the other thing. And everybody looks at Ezra. He wrote it in his basement, of course. But he's trying to pass it off as an ancient document. And they look at Ezra, and they say, Ezra, you know, we never heard of it. I never heard of it. You, my uncle's a rabbi, never told me. My grandfather, my grandmother, we never heard of it. How, how's that possible? What's he going to say? 
You all forgot national amnesia? I have news for you. Even if you would try to say that, if we would look into the Torah itself, the Torah contradicts that idea itself. The Torah itself says in Deuteronomy, it shall not be forgotten. Ezra, the very book that you say we forgot, says it will not be forgotten. Sounds like you're trying to pull one on us. I'll tell you three stories. Tell me which one is true and which one is not. Ready? In 1990, Bill Clinton was campaigning for President of the United States. He came to New York. He came to the company where I worked at at that time. Everybody came out of the building, stood outside. He drove up in a limousine with chauffeurs with the, with the Secret Service. And he came out and made a small speech, and we all lined up to shake his hand. I was first online, actually. I shook Bill Clinton's hand, and he said to me, I support Israel. I don't know why he said that to me. I don't know. Maybe he thought, I'm also interested in Israel for some reason. Maybe I'm a giveaway. I don't know. And I, and I voted for him because he came all the way from Arkansas just for me. How could I not vote for him? Who, said, who thinks that story is true? Raise your hand. Okay. Who thinks it's not true? Okay, I got a few hands yes, a few hands not. I'll soon tell you the answer. I'll tell you another story. Uh, back about 20 years ago, I was working in a company in Columbus Circle, Manhattan, and I come out of the building and I meet my friend Donald Trump. You heard of him, yeah? He existed. Maybe he still exists. And Donald Trump says to me, Bergstein, how you doing? I say, fine. You doing any of those discovery programs still? I say, yeah. Where's your next program? I told him Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He says, great. That's not far from my new place in Atlantic City. Or Trump something. And uh, after the program, maybe I could send over a bus and bring the people to Atlantic City. You know, maybe you'll get a bigger crowd for your discovery program if afterwards they can come to the casino. I told him I have to check with the discovery office. You know, I'm not sure that'll fly, but uh, maybe. Well, I'll let you know. Who believes that story? Who doesn't believe that story? Okay, I got one or two hands said yes, a few said no. And for both of those stories, I saw a lot of people didn't vote at all. You know, that's the two-thirds that didn't vote. You know. One more story. This one's about... Um, what's the mayor of New York now? De Blasio. De Blasio yeah. <laughs> I'm still up to Wagner and Dinkins. <laughs> and maybe catch... Okay, Mayor de Blasio, yes. You'll remember, a week ago Sunday, everybody was here at J-Pulse, and Rabbi Katz introduced me, and I introduced Mayor de Blasio of New York City, and he made a little talk for everybody here about the benefits of you graduating universities and getting master's degrees and then coming to work for the City of New York Civil Service Department because <laughs> it'll just be the best job you can get after you graduate Harvard and Cambridge and Boston U and all of those nice places. You remember that event, of course. Who believes that story? Nobody. Who doesn't believe it? Everybody. Okay. This is what's going on. The first story with Bill Clinton... It's true. 
actually happened. It was in downtown Brooklyn and Syac. It actually happened. And I voted for him. But you didn't know if it was true or not because I was talking about my own personal experiences. The second story with Donald Trump, not true. I've never met Donald Trump. He's never met me. If he wants to make an appointment, I'll see if I can fit him into my schedule. But you didn't know if it was true or not because, again, I'm talking about my own experiences. But that third one you knew wasn't true because I wasn't talking about my experiences. I was talking about your experiences. And if I tell you that you experienced something that you actually did not experience, there's no debate. It's false. You could debate if I know Clinton or if I know Trump. If I met Clinton, if I met Trump, if the whole story happened or it's a fabrication or it's partially true, partially false, who knows? But the third one with Mayor de Blasio, there's, there's no way it's true. You know it yourself. You can't lie about somebody's own experiences. Nobody can come along and duplicate the Sinai experience because if a person didn't experience it, it's not going to be able to be recorded. And that's why no other religion makes this claim. Because if it didn't happen, you can't tell constituents it happened. And therefore, you have to tell them, listen, believe in this person, believe in that person. So the evidence is that if it's in our Bible, and it's in the history of the world, and it's in the best-selling book in the world that has sold more copies than all other books combined, the evidence points to it being a real event, exactly as it says. In fact, more people on planet Earth believe in Torah from Sinai than probably anything else. Now you're looking at me, what do you mean? Only the Jews have that, right? And we're not most people. No, no, no. You ask a Christian three questions. Was Jesus the Son of God? He'll tell you yes, that's his religion. Was Mohammed the ultimate prophet? He'll tell you no, that's not his religion. Did Israel stand at Sinai and get the Torah? He'll tell you yes. And then he'll add, but later on, Jesus told us that it's canceled. Okay. <laughs> Personally, I think if that God wants to cancel it, he should come back with another sound and light show like the first one. You know, not, you know, hey, tell everybody canceled. Well, okay, that's personal opinion, even I'm being recorded. But the idea of Israel at Sinai is there. Ask a Muslim. Same questions. Jesus, son of God? No, no, no. That's not us. Mohammed, the ultimate prophet? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. Good. And did Israel stand at Sinai? Yes, there was a divine revelation at Sinai to the children of Israel. Absolutely, 100%. But, Mohammed, uh, you know, canceled it. This is already this, this updated, new, new book. That, that book, yeah, that book's still holy, but, uh, you know, we got a new book. John changed his mind? I guess so. He came to you as a big relevant. I don't know. So, but the point is, that you ask a billion Christians and a billion Muslims, this is historical fact. You ask the same three questions to the Jews, Jesus the Son of God, 
Certainly not. Muhammad, the ultimate prophet? Certainly not. No problem. And our ancestors stood at Sinai? Well, there's some interpretations. What's the problem? I just had one billion Christians saying yes, and one billion Muslims saying yes. So why do we ourselves have any problem with that idea? And you know there are people in our Jewish communities who struggle with this idea. How could it be? Why don't, why don't the Christians and Muslims struggle? Very simple. Because if it doesn't require anything of a person, and it's been canceled, and it's been you know, uh, taken over by something else, no problem acknowledging historical fact. But if a Jew acknowledges the historical fact and actually internalizes it, they know there's no ducking and saying it's been canceled. They don't buy that. So that means I better take a better look at it. And when it says in it about Shabbos or kosher or slander or stealing, God really means it. And that's what my life's about. And I better think about it. And as, an important, as important as it is for me to graduate my university and have a nice career for the next 40, 50 years, it's at least equally important for me to explore this book and have a nice eternity for the next couple of trillion years for my soul after 120 years stay on those treadmills in this world. One last thing on this. We have a tradition going back to Sinai. Other religions have traditions also. Our traditions are true. Their traditions are also true. But you've got to know what they are. If you ask a Christian, and this is not knocking Christianity, this is making the contrast. If you ask a Christian, why do you believe in Jesus? The answer is, my father, my grandfather, my grandfather, my grandparents, all the way up the line. Let's say even to original disciples. What did you see? The great, 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 great grandfather. What did you see? I didn't see anything. God didn't speak to me. But I believe in that man. Jesus in this case. Case of an Islamist, Mohammed in that case. Case of the Babism guy, Bob. <laughs> I believe in that man. I believe in that man. You didn't see anything yourself? No, but I believe in that man. That's the tradition. In fact, in some religions, the fact that I don't have anything solid, and I don't have any evidence, and I don't have any knowledge of the event, or the reality, or the truth of the event, makes it all the better. Because it forces me into a sort of blind faith which in many religions is considered a big uh, plus. And if it doesn't make sense, then it just doesn't make sense to me, but I'm required to have blind faith. And I'm not knocking that idea. I'm just contrasting it. Judaism, we're not looking for that. Judaism, we're looking for, we go up the line, up the line, up the line to the great, 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 great grandfather, and we ask him, what did you see? I heard it myself. I heard, I am the Lord your God who has taken you out of Egypt. I heard the sound of the voice of Hashem. I saw myself everything. I was there. Not Moses. Me too. Different kind of thing. Completely different ballgame. Out of the range.
I'll leave the last quote up. This small piece of information, this one piece of evidence, is in a bigger discovery program, part of a big package. It was picked, though, to present it here tonight because this is a giant sort of core crux question with the major answer. And I like to tell audiences sometimes, and I'm going to say it here too, that I would really appreciate if you wouldn't buy into my question and answer but you'd rather mull it over because of the following. If what I just said you reject, then you're not thinking it carefully enough. And if, why, if I, what I just said you accept without thinking it through, you haven't heard the depth of it. I often encourage people to think maybe, because the maybe is where you're going to pursue studying this event in depth studying the Torah in depth, and we, Jews, and our Torah have nothing to fear of somebody finding out every piece of knowledge and information that's in every single volume of the Talmud. Because there's nothing there that's indefensible. There's nothing there that's to be ashamed of. There's nothing there that has to be hidden. And to us, we pride ourselves on what it says in the Pesach in the verse. Loosely translated, that's a verse in Deuteronomy which we say in Semchas Torah. have been shown and taught to know about Hashem, about God. Not to believe, to know. Piece of historical information. And it should be a starting point rather than an ending point. This is a focus on the Torah. But I'd also like to focus on another, another book. The book of Megillah Esther. Is Megillah Esther part of the Torah? Well, it depends how you define the word Torah. If you define the word Torah in its regular or more narrow uh, definition, Torah is the five books of Moses. I'll try to say it in English. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's easier in Hebrew for me. That's the Torah, and that was dictated to Moses at Sinai. As we've seen, one drop of solid evidence on that. But if you define Torah in a broader sense... The explanations of the Torah, well, the Talmud itself is in that category too, and certainly the books of the prophets and the writings are in it too, because besides the five books of Moses, we have 19 other books, some prophetically written, some just below the level of prophecy, which the rabbis of the Talmud all incorporated into our Tanakh, into the 24 books of what we call loosely scriptures. Three levels in scriptures. One level is the five books of Moses, Torah. Dictation, God to Moses, as we've talked about a little bit. Second set, prophets. Prophets means God appears to the prophet, and the prophet writes down his experience. What's the difference between that and the five books of Moses? Five books of Moses is God's the writer. Moses is the secretary. In the prophets... God is the actor or appearer in the prophecy, but the words 
are the prophet's words. In the last section, which we call Kisuvim, the writings, in that section it's a level below prophecy. It's a level of some type of divine communication, but not quite a prophecy, where the writer writes their experience. Now, if you ask me to tell you the difference between prophecy and that level slightly below prophecy, I'll admit to not knowing, because I've never experienced either one, neither prophecy nor right below prophecy. I'm a much further down in the levels, so I can't tell you what prophecy or close to prophecy is. What are the books of prophecy, the prophecy books? Joshua, Judges, Yeshua, Shmuel, Samuel, Kings, Yechezkel, Yirmiyah, Yeshaya, Isaiah, Jeremiah, those books, and the writings, famous books, Tehillim, Psalms, Mishlei, Proverbs, many others, including the book of Esther. Who wrote the book of Esther? Megillus Esther? Esther dictated it to the scribes. And it was with a high level of not quite prophecy, but quite just below that, but still in, in, in our 24 books. Does it surprise you that the book of Esther is in the 24 books of Scripture? A little bit it should, because it's a book that doesn't have God's name in it. Did you know that? You go to the shul on Purim and you listen to the whole book of Esther. Every time Haman's name is there, Haman's name is, everybody's banging away. Uh, Haman's name is there so many times. And Esther's name is there, and Mordechai's name is there, and the king is there too. His name is Achashverosh, if you don't know. But God's name isn't there. Where's God's name? It's not in the book. It's an interesting thing. Anybody here named Esther? I know there's one person here named Esther. We're going to ignore her. It's my wife. She doesn't count. Her name's Esther too. Not Vashti. Esther. Anybody else named Esther? Once I gave this presentation somewhere and a man raised his hand. I said, your name's Esther, my name's Susan. Hi. Okay. Anybody knows what the name Esther means? How about I give you a hint? In Hebrew, take away the first letter from Esther. There's three letters left. Seser. Seser means hidden. Right. Secret. Something secret. There's something secret in the book of Esther. What is it? Things are hidden in it. One of the things hidden in it? God's name is not, not there. The book of Esther is written on a scroll just like a Torah. And on Purim, when we read it in the synagogue, we read it just like a Torah. The only difference is the Torah is hundreds of columns long on wooden handles that you get the strongest guy in the shul to pick it up after we finish reading it and show everybody. And the book of Esther is written on the same parchment, but it's only 12, 13, 14, 15 columns long, depending on the writing of the scribe. And you can pick it up with your hands. Yeah, I got a picture. Yeah, there's a column as it would appear in the book of Esther, in the Hebrew. Written, looks like a Torah scroll, right? But it's actually from the book of Esther. What's in the book of Esther? The story. The Jews were in the Persian Empire. The destruction of the first temple happened. The second temple had not yet been built. The Jews were in exile for the first time in many, many years. Things look bleak. Things look bad. The temple is in ruins. The Jews are dispersed and exiled. And not only that, but all of a sudden a new prime minister shows up and his name is Haman or Haman in English, and he decides he's going to exterminate the Jews. 
And he goes to King Achashverosh with this idea, and Achashverosh, the Persian monarch, who ruled from India to Ethiopia, so there was no running away from this guy, says, good, Haman, let's do it. Only one little thing. The queen, Esther, was Jewish. He didn't know Haman. And the plot was foiled. And she came to the king, and everybody knows in the end, Haman was foiled, he was hanged, we have Purim L'chaim. Right? That's the story in a nutshell. God's name isn't in it. Very odd. Why wouldn't God's name be in it? Well, the, actually the Talmudic sages say his name is there, but it's hidden. Like everything else. Where is it hidden? It's hidden in a word. The word is Hamelech. Translated? The king. When it says in the Megillah, Hamelech, the king, on a superficial level, it means the king Achashverosh, the Persian monarch. On a deeper level, mystically, Kabbalistically, Kabbalah, Kabbalah, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. It's the king. The king, Hashem. Not Elvis, the king, Hashem. Okay. That's what the Talmud sages say. That's fine. Somebody even mentioned to me once the possibility that one of the reasons Esther didn't want to write God's name in it is because she was afraid that the uh, Megillus wouldn't be handled properly and it would fall into the wrong hands and God's name would be in the printing and it would be desecrated, whatever the reason. More logically, everything was hidden. So we're hiding God's name. But if Hamelech means God, we got to examine that. So here, here's a column. I'll give it to you in English. Here's the same column in English. In case the Hebrew is hard to read because you don't know Hebrew or because the letters are too small, the English letters are larger. This already is late in the story. This is already at the point in the story where the Jews were being victorious against their enemies. They were given permission to fight back unlike at other times in Jewish history. And it says, And the Jews struck at their enemies with the sword and slaughter and destruction. And this and police those who say to them, And the Shushan, the capital of the Jews, slew and destroyed 500 men, including Pashandosa, Dafanas, Pastaparata, Dalyari, Dosa, Pamashta, Risa, Vaivosa, the ten sons of Haman. Everybody sees that the ten sons of Haman are dead? Okay? They're dead. Goodbye, Yiskadal. <laughs> the Megillah continues. That same day, the number of Jews, the number of, I'm sorry, the number of those killed in Shushan the capital was reported to the king. The king said to the queen, in Shushan the capital, the Jews were slain and destroyed 500 men, including the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? What is your request now? It shall be granted to you. What is your petition further? It shall be fulfilled. What else would you like, Esther? What an opportunity. Unlimited credit card, I don't know. Nah, that's not what she's looking for. She answers as follows. Esther replied, If it pleases the king, allow the Jews of Shushan to do tomorrow as they have done today, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. There are two questions here. First question. Esther, hello. They're dead already. What are we hanging them for? They're dead. They'll become more dead? So there's no such thing as more dead. Dead is a state of 
existence or non-existence. It's a state of existence, actually, without being too philosophical. But you can't get more dead. Either you're dead or you're not dead. So why is she hanging the dead guys? Bigger question. If the rabbis of the Talmud are correct, and they're telling me that whenever it says the king, it means God, if it pleases the king, allow the Jews of Shushan to do tomorrow, as she's asking God to allow the Jews of Shushan to do tomorrow as today? No, she's praying to God that give the Jews another day to do more tomorrow? She's asking God? I mean, what exactly is going on? The answer is, I'm not sure. But, I'd like to offer a possibility. What Esther is asking of the king, and what she's talking about when she says, if it pleases the king, let the Jews do tomorrow like today. Tomorrow doesn't necessarily mean tomorrow morning. Tomorrow means a future time, you know. In the morrows, in the tomorrows. What's she asking about? So here's my speculative idea. After the Second World War in 1946, were trials in Nuremberg for the top Nazis that survived the war. Those who didn't survive, Hitler himself, was never brought to trial. But 10 top Nazis were brought to trial. They were convicted of war crimes. And the New York Times reports on October 16, 1946, Goering ends life by poison, Ten others hanged in Nuremberg prison for Nazi war crimes. Courtroom photo, right over there, courtroom photo of, new, of Nazi war crimes. Although the trial ended in June 1946, sentencing was repeatedly postponed due to appeals for amnesty. We'll talk about that in a moment. How could there be appeals for amnesty for the world's worst murdering butchers that there are? But first, let's focus on the headline. Gehring ends life by poison, 10 others hanged. Is it possible that Esther is asking about a way off tomorrow of God? We got these 10 sons of Haman, but there's a future 10 sons of Haman, the 10 Nazis that survived the war, shouldn't go unpunished. And Esther is saying to God, if it pleases God, do tomorrow as today and have the ten sons of Haman of the future of the tomorrow hanged. And just to add a little to it, Haman had an eleventh child, a daughter. We know nothing about her life. We only know about her death. She committed suicide. She committed suicide when there was a parade in the per ancient Persian capital of Shushan, where she thought that the Jew Mordechai was leading the parade. She threw a filthy chamber pot out of the window to disgrace Mordechai. It landed on his head, but it wasn't Mordechai leading the parade. It was her own father, Haman Haman, leading the parade. And when she realized her grave error, that she publicly humiliated and, and, and her father, she jumped out the window committed suicide. Ten Nazis were hanged in Nuremberg, one committed suicide. Ten sons of Haman hanged in ancient Chushan, Persian capital, and one committed suicide. 
coincidence or it's an Esther praying for a tomorrow? Now, let me be truthful. This is speculation. It's not evidence. There's a big difference. What we talked about before, when I showed the example of Sinai, we have a claim, there's our Torah, it's been there for, for, since Sinai, it says everybody heard the, the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the shofar, it's in the document, it's not duplicatable, nobody in history has been able to duplicate it because if an event like that didn't happen, you can't retrofit it into the future. <clears throat> That's evidence. In fact, that's strong evidence. But this, I've got to be truthful. It's speculation. Yeah, 10 sons of Haman, 11 suicide. 10 Nazis, 11 suicide. It sounds good. Oh, she says, if it pleases the king, do tomorrow as today. Sounds nice. But it's speculation. I'll make it into evidence, though. I'll show you how. The year was 1946. The Hebrew year was 5707. What year were we up to now, you know, in the Hebrew year? Anybody knows? <coughs> 5775. So this was like, uh, what was that, 68 years ago or so? Nobody in this room was born yet. Not even me. I wasn't there born yet. Close. <laughs> Close. <laughs> Not yet. The day was Chof Aleph Tishrei, the 16th day of October. Happened to have been Hashanah Rabbah, Kabbalistically a day of judgment for the nations of the world. But look carefully at the Hebrew letters. The Tof, the Shin, and the Zion. Right below 5707 are the Hebrew letters for that year. Tof, Shin, Zion. Look carefully at them. If you don't know Hebrew, just try and look at the letters and get the picture of the letters. The Sof, the first letter on the right-hand side, sort of looks like uh, upside-down U. The Shin looks like an E that slipped on the uh, Boston ice in February. The Zion, like a person with a hat that needs a chiropractic uh, fix to the fourth vertebrae. Uh, you get the idea. Look carefully at the letters. We're going to see them again. Here's the ten sons of Haman. <clears throat> large letters. You know why a lot of letters? Large letters? Because in every single Megillah in history, the ten sons of Haman are written in their own column with large letters. I suppose Esther told the sages and the rabbis and the scribes, we got them. Give them their own column with big, large letters, you know. Change your font over there in Lotus Notes or whatever you're doing. And, you know, and make it nice, big letters. Except for three letters. I want them small. Three letters small? Yeah, look carefully. I'll highlight them, actually. The sof of the first name, Parshandosa, is small. The shin of the seventh name, Parmashta, is small. And the zion of the bottom name, Vaisosa, is small. Every single Megillah written in history 
whether it was written whether it was written this year or a hundred years ago or it's in a museum that was written a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago or all the way if there would be such a magnificent Megillah that you could sell on an auction from two thousand years ago every one of them has the big letters of all the sons of Haman except these three letters why? I don't know but I do know one thing these three letters are the year of Nuremberg. Tov, Shin, Zion. The year 5707. Yeah, you remember? Go back to the previous slide. There it is. Tov, Shin, Zion. That was the year. Here it is. Those are the letters. Tov, Shin, Zion. Now we're not looking at speculation. Now we're looking at evidence. Esther wants us to know. If it pleases the king, do to tomorrow as today... And maybe we'll put in a little hint. You should know exactly, exactly what tomorrow I'm talking about. By the way, there's many places in our Torah and our Tanakh and our scriptures that have extra big letters and extra small letters. Traditionally made big and small. Many of them we know the reasons for. And many of them we do not yet know the reasons for. And obviously, nobody knew the reasons of these letters a hundred years ago. I don't know how, even what they speculated what it could have been. But let's get off, not get off the tangent. There is one little problem with this, what appears to be a bomb of evidence. Tovshin Zion, the year of Nuremberg, right there in the names of the sons of Haman. I mean, couldn't that, this is not a pretty good indication of if it pleases the king, do tomorrow, it's today. There's one little problem. I'll tell you what it is. Hebrew does not have numbers. We don't have numbers. We use the letters for numbers also. Sort of like Roman numeral system, but not exactly. Our Aleph is an Alpha A. It's also a numeric 1. Our Bays is an Alpha B. It's also a numeric 2. The 10th letter in the alphabet is a Yud. It's a Y. It's also a 10. The 11th letter is a Chof, a Ch sound, but it's also a 20. Up to the last letter, the 22nd letter, which is a Tof, a T sound, and its value is 400. What do you do if you want to go above 400? No problem. You put two letters together. You want 401? A tough with an aleph next to each other. The tough is 400, the aleph is 1. You know, like Roman numerals. You have X is 10, you want 11, XI. If you actually add up then, tough is 400, and shin is 300, and Zion is 7, it adds up to 707. Not 5707. The year of Nuremberg was 5707. And this only adds up to 707. What's going on? Well, when you go home tonight, you'll take a look at your Jewish calendar for this year. And you'll see it'll say in English, you know, 2015 or 2014 or whatever it says. And then underneath it, it'll say the Hebrew. It'll say 5775. And then underneath it, it'll say the Hebrew letters. Toph, Shin, Ayin, Hey. Go home, take a look. And you'll see. And now you can add it up. Oh, top, we're in Tov Shin I and A. That's 5707. Let me see. Tov is 400. Shin is 300. Iron is 70. Hay is 5. Mm hmm. That's 775. That's not 5,775. It's only 775. What happened to the. 5,000. What happened to the thousands digit? In the computer business, which I am in in my spare time, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5, working for a company as a programmer, we'd say the 
thousand digit was truncated. For sending out a bill like that, the customer loves it. <laughs> Problem. But where is it? The answer is we always drop the thousandth digit. It's too many numbers to carry. I figure anyway, besides, if you don't know what millennium you're in, <laughs> the candlelighting time won't be meaningful. You know, you, you don't even know what millennium you're in. Well, you know about candlelight. You gotta, that much you got to have take for granted. You don't know what millennium. You're not in the, you know, you're in the, in the sixth millennium. You're in the 5,000 something. You're not in the 4,000, you're not 1,000 years ago. But for our purposes, it may be a little problematic. Because if I'm saying that Esther is hinting to the year Tovshin Zion, the year of 5707, the year of Nuremberg, you could very right likely argue, well, maybe she means the year 3707, or 4707, or the future year 6707. Anytime there's a 707, since the thousand digits are dropped, she might not mean that, that iteration. She might mean one before or after. Of course, that's being pretty picky, because if she can pick one in a thousand, it's pretty good, too. But Esther's not one in a thousand. It's not just numbers. It's exact. There's one more letter that's different size than all the other letters. Before I show you the letter, I'll tell you the following. Which millennium did the Nuremberg trials occur in? You're going to answer something that's probably going to be one millennium off. What are you going to answer? Now you're scared to answer because you know it's going to be off, huh? What millennium was it? I'm going to talk about it in Hebrew. Actually, it was in the 20th century in, 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 in English numbers, and it was in the year 1946. How could 1946 be the 20th century? Isn't it the 19th century? How old are you? If you say you're 23, you know what you really are? You're in your 24th year. Because t the first year is zero. I'm one year old. Oh, you're already one year old. The 1946 is the 20th century, and now we're in the 21st century. Because the end of the first century is at the year 100. You get it? Same way in Hebrew. So what millennium is Esther's story in? Is, is Nuremberg in? No, you went off the wrong way. It's in the 6th. Here, let's do it. What's the year? The year 707? What's the first millennium? The year 707. 707 is the first occurrence? What's the second occurrence? 1707. Yeah. Third occurrence? 2707. Fourth? 3707. Fifth? 4707. Sixth? 5707. Same as in English. 1944 is the 20th century. 5707 is the 6th millennium. 707, 1707, 27, 37, 47, 5707, the 6th millennium. How do I know Esther means the 6th millennium's 707? Hmm. One letter. Besides the Tof, besides the Shin, besides the Zion, the Vav of Vaisosa. Last name, first letter, highlighted, is made gigantic, swollen, extra large, every Megillah in history. Why? Looks like Esther wants us to know. If it pleases the king, do tomorrow as today, and the tomorrow is 
the year 707 in the 6th millennia, the year of Nuremberg. To me, that actually explains the New York Times. The Times said that there was repeated postponements because of appeals for amnesty. How could there be appeals for amnesty? Why would there be appeals for amnesty? The answer is, according to my calculation here, the trial ended too early. The trial ended in June 1946. If they would have been hanged then in June 46, what year would it have been? It would have been the year 5706, because our year changes on Rosh Hashanah on the new year on the high holidays. If they would have been hanged then when the trial ended, I'd stand here in Boston and I'd tell you, look how close Esther came. She said 5707, and it was 5706 and three quarters. Yay! No. <laughs> the judge says, appeals for amnesty. Why? Trial ended too early. Did the judge know that? Of course not. How would he know any about this? He never came to a discovery program. Discovery program didn't even exist then. Comes the summer, appeals for amnesty. Comes September, comes to Rosh Hashanah, the year changes. It's Esther's year, 5707. The same judge says, appeals for amnesty. What are we, Meshuggah? Hang them. Murderers. Mass murderers. And they were hanged. It was Esther's year. Interesting. Somebody's pulling the strings from way on top. Newsweek, as all the other media at that time, actually covered the trial. And you might have had this Newsweek, but you probably threw it in the recycle by now. You could get it on microfish probably from a library. Newsweek reported the whole thing. Newsweek said, only Julius Streicher went without dignity. He had to be pushed across the floor, wild-eyed and screaming, Heil Hitler. Mounting the steps, he cried out, and now I go to God. He stared at the witnesses facing the gallows and shouted, Purimfest 1946. And Newsweek adds in parentheses, Purim is a Jewish feast. <laughs> Not everybody knows. What is Julius Streicher yelling about Purim Fest 1946? When is he being hanged? He's being hanged on October 16th. When is Purim? February, March. Some years the end of February, the beginning of March. He's not being hanged anywhere near Purim. He and the other nine, these ten Nazis, are being hanged in Tishrei. Three weeks after Rosh Hashanah. Nowhere near Purim. What's he yelling Purim Fest 1946? Newsweek doesn't tell us. Newsweek doesn't know. We know. Because Julius Streicher, in all his evil... The Nazis looked at Jewish history. The Nazis knew what was going on. The Nazis knew when to give the Jews a piece of bread because today is Passover. Or when to give them an extra piece of bread because today is Yom Kippur and they'll tor torment the Jews by giving them today bread. And they made a specialty of knowing about Judaism. And Julius Reicher, somewhere subconsciously or consciously, I don't know how, 
understood there's a connection. The long hand of Esther got him. Otherwise, how do you explain that? Purim Fest, 1946. Looks like even in the book of Esther, the book of Esther being in the section of our Tanakh scriptures called the Kisuvim, the lowest level of divinity and of divine intensity, lower than the level of the prophets like Isaiah, way lower than the level of the five books of Moses themselves. This kind of unique divine evidence is existing in the book of Esther. The Torah itself is... is we did one piece of evidence is beyond anything. I'm over my time. But I'm going to conclude just with one story. A personal story. When my second daughter got engaged, she showed me her engagement ring. I'm sure all my daughters show me their engagement ring. I just, this, this story happened with my second daughter. And I looked at it, and she said to me, Tati, that's father in Yiddish, is it nice? It looks nice. I look at it. I say, it's very nice. Really, I don't know the first thing about diamonds. Zero. In fact, you could go outside here in, in Boston, pick up off the floor a piece of glass of a broken Pepsi bottle, shine it, put it into a setting, make it nice there, shine it up, and put it like that, and I won't know the difference between the diamond and the Pepsi. My wife thinks that's a problem. I don't know why. <laughs> but either way, why don't I know the difference between a diamond and a Pepsi? Am I so stupid? I don't think so. Because if you'll give me a COBOL program, I'm a mainframe programmer, with embedded SQL and DB2 commands, and it can be 20,000 lines wrong, and you'll ask me without any aids of any kind of anything to read the listing and find all the errors, I'm pretty sure I'll find every single error in 10 minutes. Because I'm so smart? How come I'm so stupid when it comes to the diamond and the Pepsi, and I'm so smart when it comes to the COBOL, which I can read better than Hebrew? The answer is simple. Education. Programming, I went to school. I've been a programmer for 30 plus years. Uh, I know my work there. Not that I'm smart. I have experience. With the diamonds, nobody ever took me up to a diamond factory and showed me under a magnifying glass what a diamond is, what it is. So I don't know. I'm not smart. I'm not stupid. It's a matter of where I'm educated, I know it. And where I'm not educated, I don't know it. But I bet you, if they took me upstairs to the Diamond District and put it under a magnifying glass, they'd show me, see, Bergstein, this has prisms, it shines, whatever a diamond's supposed to do. And look at the Pepsi. It's dull. It's nothing. It's even engraved Pepsi in it. What do you think it is? <laughs> That's our Torah, ladies and gentlemen. With the proper education, and everybody here being students of of current and former students of the best schools that there are, obviously we got a smart audience here. It's a matter of getting that same Jewish education. Checking it out, finding out. We're not scared. Rabbi JP is not scared. I'm not scared. No rabbi is scared. Find out. 
because it's not a Pepsi Cola broken glass Torah. It's the real thing, not Coke. The real thing, the diamond. That's what it is. We presented tonight just the smallest drop of evidence. There's so much more. It's not even a tip of an iceberg. It's less than that. The books are here. The books are open. The J-Pulse is here. The facility is here. It's nice. It's stressless. It's relaxing. It, it, it has enough material to keep you busy for forever and has a staff that can handle every question. Get the education. Take advantage of it. Claim the diamond that's rightfully yours and bring in a million other friends also. Find out the real thing. Thanks for listening. Sorry for being a little bit long. I would take questions, but I don't want to keep anybody longer, so I'll take them on the side if anybody has any. I want to wish Rabbi J.B. Katz, his staff, and everybody who comes here the best of success in Yiddishkeit, in Judaism, and in everything you do, and to always come to happy occasions and to learning occasions, and to be proud to be a Jew, and to be proud to be a Jew that more and more and more gets familiar and observant in Torah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to jpulse.org. You can find this and other great talks on iTunes and SoundCloud by searching jpulse.